Hey, Andrew, did you hear about that explosion at the French cheese factory? No. What happened? Dude, there's debris everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Pints and Princesses. Hello, and welcome back to Pints and Princesses. I'm Andrew. And I'm Jake. And we want to apologize for the long wait you've had between The Little Mermaid and today's episode on Beauty and the Beast. Life's been a little bit busy this spring. We've had lots of family activities. Yep, things getting started back. Cub Scouts, soccer practice. It's just, it's been super packed, and it's taken us some time to figure out how we're going to work all this stuff together. But now we are very optimistic that summer is approaching. We're going to have a lot more time for activities. It's going to be great. (laughs) And hopefully you, dear listeners, will be the beneficiaries of all of our wondrous activities. Hmm. So today we are talking about Beauty and the Beast, and it's just a fantastic movie. It is undeniably my favorite Disney movie. Probably makes my top ten list of movies overall. As a kid, I didn't care for it that much. Um... I watched it again for the show a few months ago when we first planned to record our episode, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. But as I spent more time with it, um, since we've had this intermission of episodes, I listened to the soundtrack more. I watched it again a couple times. Uh, my, my daughter Allie requested uh, to watch it again. And yeah, every time I watched it, I just enjoyed it more and more. Uh, it's a really great movie. Yeah. yeah. As a kid, you know, I, I made a comment last episode, I think, about, uh, you know, the squishy white boxes. This is the one squishy white box that we had in my house. We had this movie on VHS, and we watched it tons. And, man, great choice by my parents of all the ones to pick. I think it was, you know, this, this is a story that's rich, it's light. Uh, yeah, it's got it all. It's got everything. I, Beautiful animation, great soundtrack. It's just, uh, to me, it's the total package. Well, let's start with a little bit of background on the story and the fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast. Sure. So the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast, um, it's best known from the version that was written by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, or a pared-down version of her story was written by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. So Villeneuve published her version in 1740, with Beaumont publishing the simplified version about 10 years later. Uh, Villeneuve's tale is considered the oldest known version of this particular tale, but some of the major elements and kind of what they uh, talk about is like archetypal fairy tale types, it's part of a very ancient tradition of storytelling that you know dates back thousands of years uh, and encompasses Europe and Asia at the very least. Um, the version, this version is typically connected, um, I'll, I'll say like, uh, like in lineage, to the tale of Cupid and Psyche from the Greek author Apuleius. So the general story arc, it starts similarly, um, except that the character Gaston is a complete Disney creation. Uh, in the fairy tale versions, the prince is typically afflicted by an evil fairy, sometimes because he refuses her desire to marry him. And then the main antagonists in the fairy tale are Beauty's older sisters, who are jealous of her virtues. Um, Beauty's father is a wealthy merchant who loses his fortune in a storm at sea. 
and is thus forced to live in the countryside. And you know, the general idea is that beauty adapts to this, or Belle adapts to this, um, you know, with virtue, whereas her sisters, you know, feel afflicted because they have to, you know, live in peasantry when they're used to being nobility. Um, the final arc of the Beaumont version occurs when Beauty desires to return to her father's house so she can attend her sister's weddings. And then they're so upset to see that she, you know, they were, they were kind of celebrating when uh, she got sent off to the Beast. You know, there's reasons in that story arc why they felt like it was her fault. Um, but they find out that she's not miserable living with the Beast, and actually she's, you know, like, kind of living in luxury. And so they pretend... Of, uh, they feign affection to persuade her to stay beyond the time limit set by the beast. And then eventually, you know, Beauty has this dream where she sees the beast dying in the garden. And uh, that, that causes her to finally return and find him, you know, basically dying of a broken heart because she's, been, she's abandoned him. Um, which finally causes her, you know, throughout the whole story arc of Beaumont, she's, she won't marry him. She likes him, but she won't marry him. And then this causes her to finally realize and confess her love. She agrees to marry him, and that breaks the spell. And, you know, same thing here where it causes him to transform from this sort of bestial, ugly form into the form of a prince. Outstanding. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the princess part of today's show. Now let's talk a little bit about our first pint. What do you have for us today, Jake? So this is a, I think, just a really beautiful golden ale. Um, it is... I, We've got a growler for this, so this is uh, from our uh, esteemed local brewery tap house, um, and it's they call it Olympic Gold. I got it because in my mind, this is exactly what they're drinking in the barroom scene in Beauty and the Beast. In Gaston's Tavern. That's right. Now, speaking of our local tap house, you know, I would love to record a live episode of Pints and Princesses on location there. So perhaps one day we can make that happen. That would be amazing. Scumps. Scumps. It's light, delicious, a little bit sweet in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Not very much hop at all. Mostly just like a the kind of refreshing drink that come in from a hot day of the fields. You want to just grab a hold of that and put one down. And in these fields, uh, I assume we're growing wheat because, um, well... As you can tell through uh, through Jake's beautiful pronunciation of the authors' names, <laughs> th- this is obviously a, a French tale, right? No doubt about it. So, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> starting to feel a little bit in trouble at the end of Little Mermaid, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of negative rap going on with the, the French chef. But don't worry, Disney came right back and gave the French their shot to poke fun at the English. And... This, this is it. Yeah, the, the whole tale of Beauty and the Beast is clearly set in sort of a pastoral French village. Yes, I, I will say that uh, they did have some like several prominent characters who were clearly English, though. Right? <laughs> Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts are, are clearly English characters here. Right, but just like in the middle, in The Little Mermaid, the one French character was kind of this stereotype. In the same way, Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts are yeah. very much stereotypes. Cogsworth, Cogsworth especially is a stereotype, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so in our, our French fields, in this pastoral town, this provincial town, if mm. you will. <laughs> if uh, you will. <laughs> um, we're likely growing wheat, um, mm. which, um, as good Frenchmen, we would then bake into... Baguettes, of course. 
So, it's only natural we would sample these fine baguettes here on the show as well. Do you have some baguettes for us, Jake? <laughs> I do. So, right before I came, uh, we have... We, so, it baffles me. At Costco, you can buy boxes full of frozen French baguettes. I, I, have, I have examined this packaging very thoroughly. It stuns me. It stuns me that it's possible for people in France to bake bread, and it makes sense for them to ship it across the ocean to me so that I can eat it. I love it, but it baffles me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And we probably shipped the wheat to France for Mm. them to bake. No, it definitely says French wheat on the package. Does it? Yep. Yep. So these are true French baguettes, you know, just like flour, water, salt, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of yeast. Bam. I would love to try one. Absolutely. So I, uh, mm. I brought some, some butter here, too, if you want to put a little bit on that. You can't properly eat a baguette mm. without butter. Mm. It'd be better with brie, but, you know, we'll make do. And how would you describe brie while well, I chew here and talk with my mouth full? It's a creamy kind of cheese, you know, very, um, I would say mild. Well, really a very good counterpoint to the very... Now, I feel like cheddar is very... Uh, English feel, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, yeah, so it's a counterpoint to that. Although, you know, as I say that, it's, maybe they're backwards, because I always feel like the French have a reputation for being, like, louder and more abrasive than the <laughs> English, who are more mild, but the cheddar has a much stronger, sharper flavor, whereas brie is like a creamy, smooth, soft uh, hmm. cheese. So, there you go. It's one of our favorite terms here on the show. It's an inversion. <laughs> That's right. It is an inversion. Yeah. So these are these are delicious. You know, I've mm. I have read that the baguette was invented specifically to increase the crust of the bread. Now, which to an American, that's just like that's baffling, mm. right? Like as a kid, the one piece of the bread you don't want to eat just is the, the crust. Yeah. But the baguette is long and thin, just so that every bite can. Which, when you eat the crust on a baguette. You're in a different world than you are with Wonder Bread, right? I mean... So, it, it is interesting. You know, they always say, this is the best thing since sliced bread. But <laughs> have you ever had a baguette? Like, it's not sliced, and it's better. It's delicious. Although, I mean, if they went ahead and sliced it, I wouldn't argue with them. I mean, that's true. What, what's the first thing you do with a baguette? I guess you, you slice it. <laughs> that's right. Or take well, a bite out of the end. I don't know. Yeah, take a bite out of the end. You know, my um, brother-in-law lives in... Uh, on the border of Switzerland and France, and he talks about being able to, you know, go to a French bakery and get a fresh baguette for lunch. Marie, the baguettes! <laughs> Man, what a lifestyle. It's amazing. I, I suppose we should talk a little bit about this movie. Yeah, let's dive in. Okay. I mean, we can, we can work in the French conversation as part of it, right? So, um, this movie came out in 1991, mm. uh, just two years after The Little Mermaid. And it was produced on a uh, compressed uh, schedule, mainly because the first version that uh, they had started, uh, that they'd written, they threw out. Uh, and they got new directors came in, and the first version wasn't going to be a, a musical style, um, hmm. and the head of animation, Catsworth, at, at Disney, didn't like it, uh, and it did a complete rewrite. Uh, they brought in some new directors. Did it as a Broadway-style musical, very similar to The Little Mermaid. They wanted mm-hmm. to recapture that massive success they had. And 
Uh, and they really did. Um, it was uh, it grossed three hundred and thirty one million dollars at the box office worldwide on a twenty five million dollar budget. Pretty good turnaround. Yeah. Um, it was released on home video uh, in October of 1992, so about a year after it came out in theaters. Mm. Uh, but then it was removed six months later. This is you know that Disney uh, tradition of of putting it in the in the vault, right? Like right. there's artificial scarcity. Hey, you better buy this while it's available, because <laughs> you know it may not be someday. And yeah, you can't you can't argue with the uh, sort of manufacturing savvy of that, right? Like it's no. expensive to maintain long-term productivity of these things or maintain stock or whatever i suppose i, I think it's it's mostly marketing play yeah well that's what i mean it works on many levels i guess but yeah. like everybody else continues to sell their movies so it's yeah. not like it's impossible to do oh yeah right true um one thing that was interesting they uh they did an imax version of the film that they released in 2002 and it included a song human again uh, which is a, a five-minute musical sequence that had been cut from the original film prior to its release. Really? And this is interesting because we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the it it challenged the timeline. It brought up some inconsistencies in the timeline of the movie, which, huh. pay attention, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, they revised that in the version they put into the IMAX, but they removed this human again uh, scene or song from the original one and replaced it with something there uh, hmm. where they had that the voiceover scene where they're playing in the snow and oh, yeah, there might yeah, be yeah. something there that Man. wasn't there before great song yeah I mean all the songs are great I mean <laughs> I, I was thinking about like which one's my favorite I don't know <laughs> uh, it's it's when they all come together mm-hmm. I mean yeah that's it um, see they they cast Paige O'Hara as Belle uh, and of course uh, Belle is French for beauty, mm-hmm. hence Beauty and the Beast. Um, and they they picked her because she had a little bit of Judy Garland. Uh, and and hmm. this is who they based the appearance of Belle on, is Judy Garland. Interesting. Um, they did consider using Jodie Benson, who was the actress who voiced Ariel from The Little Mermaid. But they wanted a, a heroine who sounded more like a woman than a girl. Because Ariel has a, a very girlish voice, right? Mm-hmm. And, right. of course, Belle uh, sounds much more mature, acts much more mature. Right. I was going to say, you know? by comparison, the two characters, it makes perfect sense, right? Ariel, the whole time, is acting like kind of, there's this whole child thing going on. Yeah. Whereas with, I mean, Belle acts better than most adults. That's true. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're going to say it, but uh, but I'll beat you to it. Belle is almost without character flaw, mm. uh, kind of like Eric was in The Little Mermaid. Yep. Totally agree. So the Beast was uh, played by Robbie Benson, um, although they did consider Val Kilmer for the Beast, which, you know... <laughs> that fre- would have been awesome! <laughs> fresh off of his, his Top Gun fame, right? Like, you know, I know you mean notorious. <laughs> you know, I know what he likes you, beauty, because you're dangerous. <laughs> you can be my wingman anytime. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's done other movies. I just can't think of any. Oh, man. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I don't know. I always think of him in Top Gun. Yeah. You, cold, you you hit me cold. I feel like I ought to have at least three Val Kilmer movies loaded up in memory, but I'll bring them up when it comes. All right. <laughs> um, so the, the Beast, well, we'll save that when we, we introduce the Beast. But uh, So Gaston, as you mentioned, was not in the original fairy tale. 
but it was actually modeled after a character, Avenant, I assume that's uh, the French pronunciation, that was in the 1946 French film, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, nice. Uh, so it, it was kind of this um, this the suitor character, um, but uh, they developed him a lot more, uh, supposedly. Uh, I've not seen the French film, so I can't speak <laughs> authoritatively authoritatively on it. <laughs> Freudian slip. Yeah. <laughs> um, although, so what's interesting about Gaston is he, uh, they made him handsome, which is a, a big contrast to tr- traditional Disney villains. All the villains we've had in our films up to this point oh. have been hmm. unattractive, right? Think of uh, the, the stepmother in yeah. Snow White. Um, They've also been typically female. Yeah, the, the, the stepmother in uh, Cinderella. The Ursula. The well, yeah, Ursula and Maleficent, right? Yeah. Yeah, is Maleficent ugly? She's austere. Yeah, she not traditionally beautiful. Yes. Right. She's not beautiful. She's not exactly ugly. Um let's see, the this was the second film that Disney made after the Rescuers Down Under that used the caps or excuse me, computer. Yeah, computer animation production system for mm. digital scanning, ink, and paint. And this was software and hardware developed by Pixar. I think we, we mentioned the use of some of caps in The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. but it, it was used as the primary um, ink and paint system in Beauty and the Beast. And this allowed for greater depth, and uh, which I found very obvious in that opening market scene. Right, there's just so much depth and movement uh, right. across the depth. Um, reminded me of the kind of this uh, tr- this concept and, and capability that they lost uh, when they got rid of the the, the layered glass animation yeah. that they had in uh, in Snow, Snow White. White at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also another benefit of caps is it uh, allowed easier integration to, uh, for CGI scenes, mm-hmm. which uh, the the classic ballroom scene, the background was made with CGI, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, very obvious. Um, before Caps, if you wanted to do CGI in a traditional animation uh, and, like, use these things together, you actually had to print out the CGI scene on a plotter and then Xerox it back in after you've, like, painted <laughs> and done your, your traditional animation on, yeah. on top of it. So we're, right now in our timeline, we're kind of in this weird uh, transition from traditional hand-drawn animation to... You know our computer animation and CGI in the, um, the kind of the Pixar era that, mm-hmm. that's going to come about, um, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, yeah. and we'll we'll get to after our princess series. And <laughs> dear listeners, uh, we're, we plan to uh, to go through the the princess franchise uh, of Disney. Um, that's right. And, and then we'll come back and do some uh, some the Pixar movies. <clears throat> After our Princess Capstone. Oh, our Princess Capstone. Uh, <laughs> yes, we, which I'm very much looking forward to. We mentioned in our very first episode, uh, almost as a, uh, as a, just a gut reaction, I, I said, we should do an episode on uh, The Princess Bride. And you heartily agreed. So, uh, yes, after we do all of the Disney princesses, we will cap it off with the epic and classic Princess Bride. The 13th princess movie. Lucky number 13. <laughs> That's right. And then we'll come back and uh, and do more films from our childhood, <laughs> which I guess Princess Bride was also a film from our childhood. Yeah. But at least I watched it as a child. Definitely. I don't know when it came out. 
yeah. we'll figure that out when we when we do that episode. <laughs> we'll come back and we'll do some Pixar movies, which I thoroughly enjoyed as a child mm-hmm. as well. Definitely. So, yeah, CGI. Um, another interesting thing about production is the, the music was recorded live with the voice actors singing with the orchestra instead of his voiceovers. That would be the traditional really? method. Man. Um, also with the, the music, the, uh, the title song, Beauty and the Beast, uh, was, of course, sung by uh, Mrs. Potts, and that actress's name is Angela Lansbury. And when they asked her to uh, perform the song, she did not think her voice was suited to the melody. And when she voiced her doubts, the directors asked her for at least one take of it and told her to perform the song as she saw fit. And so Lansbury um, reportedly reduced everyone in the studio to tears with her rendition, nailing the song in one take. And this version went on to win the Oscar for Best Original Song. <laughs> Man, that's powerful. Yeah, and it's such an amazing song. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's so simple, but beautiful, and just like brings the whole story together. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we get to the ballroom. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then finally on production, they did do a couple, um, uh, uh, three direct-to-video sequels and a TV spinoff series of Beauty and the Beast. And apparently there are like five different video games on Beauty and the Beast. Really? Yeah. I had never heard of one. Never encountered one. But uh, I would have thought that I would have seen the at least the spinoff TV series, but I have no recollection of that. I mean, like I watched a fair bit of the Aladdin spinoff TV series. Yeah, I remember that one. Vaguely. Um yeah, I do. I have no recollection of the Beauty and the Beast one. It was probably just before my family had cable. So, so that's uh, my production notes on Beauty and the Beast. Why don't Sweet. we dive into the story? Yeah, let's dive in. Um, it so beautiful this, story that it is. This is my favorite intro to any of these movies. You know, so I I really like the storybook. Mm-hmm. intro model like i thought that was mm-hmm. cool you know you kind of this live action storybook they're doing something similar but instead right i mean for one thing the the animation here is just it 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 hits me right at the beginning how beautifully animated this this picture is everything that i complained about in sleeping beauty is just 100 percent fixed <laughs> right everything is just yeah. beautiful the story is just told beautifully and cohesively the the animation is is crisp and just perfect yeah it really is it's gorgeous and yeah and so then and they still do a similar thing right like you've got these sort of like still shots mm-hmm. but they're doing it at, you know framed as these stained glass windows yeah, with the narration voiceover oh, yeah. dude i mean so and, and that that voiceover is in the soundtrack because it mm-hmm. you know like blends cleanly into the opening scene it's, it's one of the, my favorite like, parts. If you don't look down at the track changing, you don't know that it's a different song. It's like <laughs> a continuous melody yeah. between the two. Yeah. So yeah. it's so cool. I love their stained glass images. Like it. It. Yeah. Everything about this is awesome, and it does such a good job of doing like this setup um, to where you know, like, well, and it and it ends with the whole thematic crux of the movie which is, who could ever learn to love a beast? Yes, and so just to quickly tell the intro story, uh, Rich Prince, living in a castle, has everything he wants, 
and a... <laughs> Dude, it's one of my favorite lines. They say, who had everything his heart desired, but he was spoiled. And it's like, <laughs> so <laughs> he was spoiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that every time I hear it, it's like, but? <laughs> I thought the same thing, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but he was spoiled. In uh, the... An old hag comes uh, on a cold winter night and asks for shelter from the cold in exchange for a rose. He turns her down because she's ugly. Uh, She says, beauty is found within. He says, yeah, right. Get out of here, ugly. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You would say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So she uh, she reveals herself to be a beautiful enchantress. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. And you're so pretty. (laughs) Right. I mean, I imagine him saying this. Right. And uh, it's too late, so she turns him into a beast and and says, uh, "When this flower drops its last petal in your twenty first year, uh, right. you will if you've not gotten somebody to love you in return, you right. will learn to love and love in return. Right, you'll yeah. remain a beast for all time, which is it's got some ominous <laughs> feelings to it. It's like, it's, does that mean that he's also cursed with immortality? I don't know. Right." Um, dark. So this 21st year timeline, um, find suspect, um, and we'll kind of get to this as more details are revealed later. And and I'm I'm very curious to to hear this human again song, the original human again song, right, and see like what timeline uh, problem they had with that. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. So I mean, um, <clears throat> as we'll get to later, it sort of implies that he's very young when this occurs. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, we go straight from the stained glass intro scene into the market scene. Well, it's, right, so it's, it's the front door of... Well, I mean, and this, this is great composition, right? Who could ever learn to love a beast? And then it's like, we're looking at the front of the house, and out comes Bill, right? It's like, it's like a subtle answer to the question straight from the beginning, right? And she's walking into town... Singing, you know, the, uh... <sighs> Bonjour. Yeah. <laughs> Good day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How is that's your right. family? And then <laughs> I, I wrote this down because I, I, I didn't catch it the first time I watched it. And then I listened to the soundtrack several times. And uh, uh, and then when I watched it again just before we recorded, I I paid less attention to the subtitles and the you know, the lyrics of the song, and I was watching more of the, the scene. So it says, Bonjour. Good day. How is your family? And then it goes, bonjour, good day, how is your wife? Yeah. But in the scene, like, there's <laughs> this guy at, who's panning the stall. Um, the lady who asked, how is your wife, is uh, <clears throat> is busty. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and he's clearly ogling her. <laughs> and she's like, how is your wife? And his wife is standing behind him with yeah, a rolling, rolling pin and just whacks him on the head. <laughs> yes. Uh. Right. Yeah, you know, that's that's yeah, little subtle things, <laughs> right. right? Dude, and this and this whole opening scene is really entertaining in that way. Like there's all there's all this little nuance right. and physical humor going on and uh yeah. yeah, really good and just the very French, right? I mean, it just sets the tone of the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, the baguettes, you know. Yeah. Uh, Marie, the baguettes. Hurry yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. <clears throat> And it does a really good job of establishing right from the get-go, like, where Belle is in this town. Oh, yeah. You know, like, making it really clear that everybody agrees she's the most beautiful person in the town. Like, this is the most beautiful girl there is. But also that she's... She's weird. Very weird. 
You know, like, you know, behind that fair facade, I'm afraid she's rather odd. With her nose <laughs> stuck in a book. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah that fancy, far-off look. Yeah. And her nose stuck in a book. It's no wonder that... Uh, I lost it. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. We don't want to get a copyright in French. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, really, it's really good establishing. Refill some pints? Yes. Um, great establishing... Um, lyrics you know it's going to build right into the i mean really the first spoken scenes with gaston will wind up playing straight into um you know the the lyrics of this song because they they use the song to build the character and and develop who bell is Mm -hmm. so before there's really any dialogue right we just have this song which itself is dialogue well and it has these little interludes Mm -hmm. you know like First, there's this little interlude with the baker, right? Mm-hmm. Where, like... Well, that's nice. She wants to tell him this story, and he's like, I don't care about that at all. <laughs> Marie, the backups! <laughs> right? And then you get this little dialogue with the bookmate, you know, the, the bookseller, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, not since yesterday. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically saying, like, she's coming and borrowing these books and reading them in one night. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so I do want to point out um, this favorite book that she picks from the, from the bookstore. <laughs> In the, this internet theory that, you know, she describes this book as a, a far-off kingdom with sword fights and magic and a prince in disguise. Right. So there's this internet theory that, uh, that this is Aladdin, right? Which, uh, of course, the, the book that Aladdin appears is Arabian Nights or A Thousand and One Nights, mm-hmm. which, dear listeners, is uh, the next movie we will be covering. That's Aladdin. right. Next on our list. So if you want to watch ahead or read ahead... Now's the time. Strongly encouraged. Yeah. Now, the one issue I have with that theory is that you get to see a picture from the book, which I also mm-hmm. find funny because later Gaston points out there's no pictures. And there's definitely <laughs> right, yeah, one absolutely. picture. <laughs> <laughs> but the sheep ate it. <laughs> That's, well, it ate a corner of the page. Mm-hmm. But you look at that picture and you don't say to yourself, like, hmm, yeah, Arabian Nights. <laughs> that looks, looks very like... pastoral French. <laughs> it, it does. But, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe whatever person was making this, you know, version for Belle sort of, you know, did a little bit of interpretive crossover to help, you know, the pictures line up with her expectations. Who can yeah. say for sure? Yeah. There's brown people in the world. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, there aren't. Those are fairy tales told by sailors. <laughs> uh, which, Sweet. of course, is humorous because... You were a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> and we definitely told fairy tales. No doubt about it. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, which brings us to the fountain scene, which is mm-hmm. just, I mean, it's, it's a nice little melodic transition. But I hate it. I hate the fountain scene. What? Because of the damage that happens to her favorite book. But it doesn't actually get damaged. This is a cartoon. <clears throat> you can drop anvils on people's head and they don't die. I don't. I don't have the cognitive dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would tend to agree. Particularly, I mean, like, <clears throat> as a modern person, it's easy not to appreciate the enormous gift that this bookseller has given to this girl. It's like, you know, he's probably, well, yeah. A book was a highly valuable thing right. in this era. And it's not like she could go get another one or, like, download it or stream it or, or whatever it is that we do to consume our media today like this was her favorite possession right and it's the only one of it that there is in the sheep eight corner of the page which, and then it gets you know, thrown in the mud is we'll, very, we'll get to that it's very goat like which you know i don't know 
I only have goats. I don't have sheep. I, I also do not have sheep. I do have chickens, but they don't eat my bucks. Yeah. A goat would definitely take a bite. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, but I don't know if a sheep would. You know, I feel like sheep are a little bit more timid. Although, you know, it is, it, it is, it's, a, it's a subtle little um, bit that harkens back to the way that we've seen our heroines characterized in the past. Mm. Right? Like, these sheep are very comfortable. She's, like, talking to them, (laughs) and they're responsive. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's not quite, you know, like, the peace with nature, like having, you know, birds land on your finger and sing back and forth with you. Or do your chores. Yeah, or do your chores for you. Mm. Um, But, you know, like, it does have a little taste of that, you know, where there's, like, she, she doesn't have, she doesn't feel, like, conflict with these animals. You know, they're very... Right. And, I mean, she does have peace with... The beast, eventually. Yeah. Interesting point to make. Foreshadowing. (laughs) In case you haven't seen the movie. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, but but it's a nice little um, melodic transition, you know, where she kind of slows down. And, you know, I've been thinking about, in Little Mermaid, you know, I watched this, I watched a documentary about that, and he was talking about how in a Broadway, like, there's always a scene where... um, the female lead sits down on something and sings about what she wants. And, you know, I think it kind of happens twice. And I think mm. this is one of them. I think one of them is this, where she's like, she's clearly like inserting herself into this story, right? Like, Interesting. Yeah. She doesn't say that this is what she wants here, but... But well, it's her favorite part. It's because she meets <laughs> Prince Charming, but she doesn't right. find out it's him until chapter three. Yeah. Exactly. So I, 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 and she's, and she's like, she like comes and she sits down on this fountain. Right. Which, why? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's, it's, it's purely, it's purely compositional for the sea, yeah. right? So, I've just had this thought that this favorite book of hers, magical far off places, that doesn't quite fit because the castle's not that far, mm-hmm. right? Magic, definitely is a. Here. A magic spell mm-hmm. actually fits a little bit better mm-hmm. with this than it does with Aladdin. Right. I mean, the genie is the magic. Of course, Jafar. But mm-hmm. um, sword fights aren't here, right? That's the obvious missing piece. Mm-hmm. But a prince in disguise. Definitely applicable, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Hmm. You could maybe argue that she's reading the very story that she's in. It's storyception. Storyception. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so... Right. So after the fountain scene, now we get introduced to Gaston, which... You're the best hunter in the whole wide world! Dude, it's (laughs) such a beautiful intro. I mean, so... Right, we've talked about in... In these other movies, the way that they use this technique where you have this shadow Hmm. over top of the face. And I mean, that's exact... This... That shot... You know, you, you see the duck get shot... And then, you know, LeFou goes over to catch it and misses it like a doofus, right? I love LeFou. <laughs> He's amazing. But then you cut over to this pic- to this shot of Gaston standing so, you know, picturesque. But he's got the, he's under the eave of the building with the shadow cast across his torso. And man, it's just like, this is the bad guy. There's no doubt about it. So I'm going to talk about LeFou for a minute before we go more into Gaston. So LeFou is French for... The madman. <laughs> but it's also a play on words in English for the fool. 
Right. I love it. So it it's just <laughs> great. And he is so just he's a dopey, right? He, this this archetype that we have in our series here. Like he's a dopey, but so loyal and uh, towards Gaston, despite all of the physical and verbal abuse that Gaston dishes out constantly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, now that you say it, I think in future movies, you're going to see that they incorporate villain dopies mm-hmm. more frequently. But I think in the past, they've all been friend dopies. You know, you think about like a Scuttle, think about Dopey proper, think about Gus Gus. Gus Gus. Right, like these are all these are all friend dopies, mm-hmm. but now we've got like, you know, I don't know what's going to be an an Ed or an Iago, um, moving forward. It's 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 a little bit of a different take, mm-hmm. and it it does it gives you more of an opportunity for some physical abuse and um, you know things like that because you can blame it on the bad guy when he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not sure Iago's the dopey, but we'll save that for next episode. <clears throat> huh. Moving on. Yeah, move so, on. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, so Gaston, yes. He uh, he says, I'm going to make Belle my wife. Yeah. Belle? But she's... <laughs> the most beautiful girl in town? Well, yes, but... And that makes her the best. <laughs> and don't I deserve the best? <laughs> Dude, they capture his whole character in like three lines of dialogue. It's like, oh, okay, now I know exactly who you are. Pints and Princesses is sponsored by HammerTech. That's right. HammerTech builds custom software like websites and mobile apps and provides managed IT support for businesses. HammerTech provides customers with innovative technology to enable their success. They've even built a mobile app featured on national cable news. To find out how HammerTech can be your technology solutions provider, visit HammerTech.com or email them at info at HammerTech.com. And remember, there's no me in HammerTech. It's H-A-M-M-R-T-E-C-H dot com. That's H-A-M-M-R-T-E-C-H dot com. Yeah, so then he, he wants to go talk to, to Bell, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. He decided it. Boom. He's going to do it right now. Like, he, he sees no reason. He can't even conceive of the possibility that she would say anything other than yes to anything that he asks of her. Well, right? I mean, look at who he's surrounded by. Yeah. LeFou. And then he's got these triplets, right? Which, <laughs> so you know what the, the triplets are called? Like in the credits and, and everything, they're called the Bimbets. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I did not notice that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that nailed it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I'm not sure you can get away with that in the modern era, <laughs> right? It's like, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Like, like every, and it's not just them. Like as we'll see later in the movie, the entire town is in love with Gaston. Right. Yeah. So, it, like, how could he not think that? That he's bulletproof. That right. everything. I mean, as far as he knows, he is the best thing since sliced bread. He's even better than baguettes. <laughs> <laughs> so, why would Bell not be in love with him? It's yeah. insane to think that way. It's inconceivable. Inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually the correct use of the word in this case. You know what I mean? Like, he literally can't conceive. Don't get involved in the land war, Nathan. <laughs> 
That's that's good advice. Scumps. Scumps. <laughs> right. So now we get into this like sort of composite scene where it's like Gaston trying <laughs> to catch up with Bill. In the, in you have this villagers. slowly like growing like um, you know like street dance scene from a, <laughs> a musical, <laughs> and he's like trying to fight his way through the crowd. He's like climbing on roofs. So th- this brings up a, another key difference between Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. In the, in the Little Mermaid, the music was very soloist based, where there's a lot more mm-hmm. group or choral music. Uh, in Beauty and the Beast, specifically this scene, right, where now that all the villagers are singing about Belle and how she's weird, and uh, and they're all like, you know... But she's beautiful. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'll have to think about that. And, and Gaston's trying to wade his way through the crowd, and he ends up on the roof and sliding down and jumping down right in front of her as she turns around to... <laughs> yeah, like, right. She like suddenly gets this sense that there are all these people behind her singing, and turns around and they like snap right back to their yeah. normal behavior. Yeah, dude, it 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 is a really cool. I think I think it speaks to the advantages of the animation style that they chose. Mm-hmm. That like to to I think to manually animate all that stuff just it it's so much. Whereas mm-hmm. you know I think being able to use computers probably made it possible for them to do that scene in two in years. the way that they did. Yeah, right, and fast. I mean, there's a reason that they that they have a credit in animated movies called Production Babies. <laughs> like, these are the names of all right. of the babies that were born to people that worked on this movie while we were working on this movie. <laughs> and it's usually yeah. a significant number. It's a big list, yeah. <laughs> Which is partly because there's a bunch of people. But it also, but also takes because a, it takes a long yeah. stinking time. Yeah. This is true. Yeah, and they only do that for animated movies, to my knowledge. Really, I'll have to think about that. I'll see if I can find a counterexample. Yeah. So this leads into every time Belle and Gaston interact, <laughs> it's a great scene, yeah. right? Every time, it, Belle <laughs> comes out looking so good every time. <laughs> you know, because. Well, I mean, like at this point, Gaston is so self-absorbed that like he just he just can't even well, and you know, Belle of course is like intelligent and poised and graceful and articulate, mm-hmm. right? So like she can say these things like, "Gaston, you are positively primeval." Why, thank you. <laughs> just soars right on by. And I love her face when he responds to She's like, what? Dude, yeah. They, they do a really... They, I don't know. I feel like in Little Mermaid and this movie, they really upped their game on capturing facial expression. You know, there's, there's some of it in the earlier films. Mm-hmm. And more in Sleeping Beauty than I think in Cinderella and Snow White. But here, man, like, they're nailing it, right? Like, they have so much detail in the way that they animate their facial expressions that it just, it it captures what you could get from a live-action film that's hard to get from an animated film. And it's going to continue to get better from here as we get more and more computer aid in the animation. I'll think about that. For example, the, well, look at Toy Story. I don't want to get too caught up in other films when we're talking about this film. Uh, but you know, uh, Woody's face had like so That's true. It is much very detail. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Yeah. I, don't <laughs> want to t- I, I want to talk about this film. Yeah, I agree. 
<clears throat> right. So, <clears throat> right. So we have this little interaction where um, you know Gaston is trying to basically tell you know he's he's trying to set up Bell for this upcoming proposal. She's uh, you know carefully dancing around his discussion, and somehow it comes around to his to her father. <laughs> and I like well she. He says, why don't we go back to my tavern and look at all my hunting trophies? Oh, that's right. He says, maybe some other time I have to help my father. <laughs> he needs all the help he can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Gaston laughs about it. And she says, uh, right, that, that old crazy... That, old, that crazy old kook could use all the yeah. help he can get. My father's not crazy. He's a genius. <laughs> Which is what I like. Don't talk about my father that way. <laughs> don't talk about her father that way. Whack! <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I'd like to think my kids say about me. Dude, right? <laughs> this, this, this was one of the best parts of... Uh, so, for you know, we, we go through cycles where we're listening to different soundtracks in the mm-hmm. car. And and we also have, like, the story, you know, like the, like the read-along versions of the books. And that line is in the read-along version of the book. And when Susanna was probably three or four... <laughs> Sometimes she would just say it at completely <laughs> random times, and I loved it. You'd just be hanging around, and all of a sudden you'd be like, my father's not crazy, he's a genius. <laughs> Which, of course, I couldn't help but encourage, right? It's like, that's right, honey, I am a genius. <laughs> so, the entire time I've had kids, and they would say, I'm like, oh, you're right, Dad. I'm like, And what do we say? And I'm like, condition them into this. And they'll say, Daddy's a genius. <laughs> right. And don't you ever forget it. This is good for my ego. <laughs> Which is good for you. <laughs> oh, man. Right. So then we have the explosion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, whoa. And so Belle runs off to see what's going on in the father's workshop. Which introduces us to Maurice, another great character. There's so much physical humor all throughout this movie. <laughs> I mean, I know we usually point it out when it happens. I can't in this one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too everywhere. much, right? It's like it's like this little thing where he's got you know he's like somehow inside a barrel <laughs> and it breaks open and now he's wearing it like a skirt <laughs> and he pulls it down and <laughs> polka dot underwear comes out. It's just, yeah, it's just like this is, and to me like this is just perfectly classic cartoon stuff. You know what I mean? Like, this This is what Looney Tunes is made mm-hmm. out of. This is everything that's on the Disney Channel. Like, they're just, I mean, this is just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part and parcel of the medium. Right. Which is why I didn't care for it that much when I was a kid. It just seemed so tropey. Typical. Like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. this is, and then, like, his machine that he builds, and it's, like, got those spinning things and the, the bellows, and I'm like, this is, like, everything I've ever seen in anything on TV. Yeah, I, I mean, it's true. You know, you think about, like, the old... Well, particularly, like, the Disney cartoons, mm-hmm. I think of. It's it's almost tradition in the 90s for, you know, there to be a character who's, like, the crazy inventor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, there's... Uh, <clears throat> well, so there's Gadget in the Rescue Rangers. Uh, there's Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget. Yeah, right. The whole well, movie's course, I, around him. I, I guess he's not an inventor. He's just an invention. You know, I don't know enough about the origin story of Inspector Gadget. I think he was a police much. officer who was in a tragic accident. and they He's like the bionic man, except yeah. goofy cartoon version? Yeah. Could be. Yeah. 
Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, oh, yeah. Perfect <clears throat> example. Yeah, so it's, it's just all over the place I mean, in the 90s. I mean, come on. Back to the Future. Right, right. right. 1.21 gigawatts? <laughs> Doc Brown. <laughs> right. I'm trying to remember what the name of the um, the guy in DuckTales is. Oh. Oh, man. It's like Screwball or, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's some name that, like, just perfectly <laughs> captures the... But yeah, the, I mean, it was, it's just an overdone character. Right. Right? And, I mean, I can appreciate it much more now, like with this distance. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, it just seemed overdone. Right. Yeah, he was very much a background stereotype when you're watching it as a kid. He's more entertaining, I think, as an adult. And, and his dialogue is kind of that way, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not very interesting to a kid. Right, so this gives us an introduction to Belle and her father. And we see this relationship, which, you know, I really hope that when I have even... If I have even one daughter that at Belle's age talks to me as openly about what's going on in her mind as Belle does here with Maurice, like, I will have succeeded, I think. You've got four shots at him. <laughs> Twice as many as me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. Uh, it's like she really opens up and, and and says, what's bothering her, right? Like, I just don't feel like I fit in here. Right. What about that Gaston fellow? He's <laughs> handsome. <laughs> Even Maurice. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, and, and and right later on, we're gonna see that Maurice really believes it. He mm-hmm. he, well, he's he's got that touch of naivete that's characteristic mm-hmm. of the screwball inventor, where like he's totally oblivious to the fact that everybody thinks he's a lunatic and has no respect mm-hmm. for him. Like he just he can't see it. You know, he's totally oblivious to that. Yeah, and I'm yeah, the just basic social ineptitude is very characteristic of um, this kind of character. Right, so they're having their conversation. Um, and then they get the invention to work, which is insane, right? Like, it's, it's like, what is the most complicated way we could chop wood? That's, <laughs> I could it, not think of a worse one. It, it's very Rube Goldberg, right? <laughs> right, it's like, yeah, you see, well, and it, and it is characteristic of this trope in cartoons, mm-hmm. right? Like, you see all these components, like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're like, I mean, you're lucky. That you're surprised there's not like a hamster running on a wheel to turn a gear somewhere. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, yeah, <clears throat> right. But it works, and so then they pack it up to be uh, on the cart. As uh, what's he say? Uh, saddle up, Philippe, or, or hitch up, Philippe. I'm yeah. off to the fair. I'm off to the fair. Yeah, that's right. And she and she's you know, Belle's just demonstrating her virtue here, mm-hmm. in spite of she's got to be smart enough to know that this guy's you know crazy. But she's just totally like, you're going to be a world-famous inventor. I've always all- believed it. Yeah, that's right. She's just totally mm-hmm. supportive, totally in. And um, <clears throat> you really but, think so? Uh, and she's, I always have. But I think it is a little bit self-serving, right? Because she does one out of that town. And this is her ticket out. He wins the fair, becomes a world-famous inventor, and they're going to move out of this town, back into the city, and, and it's her ticket out of here. There's some of that, but but if she does was, genuinely support her father. Yes, if I that agree. was all she cared about, she would be saying like, "You need to quit screwing around with these stupid inventions that don't work and don't make mm-hmm. any money, and use your intelligence to do something useful so you can make me the money to get me out of this town." I agree. She's definitely supportive of her father. I'm just saying that her goals align with this. Well, yeah. I mean, she cer- certainly she has to acknowledge that you know mm-hmm. her future success and well-being relies upon the success and well-being mm-hmm. of her father, right? And so, yeah, 
she is she is motivated, but I don't think that that you know necessarily I don't think that uh, you know taints the well too much. No, I'm just pointing out that it's not all altruistic. Well, but are any of us? If you pose it that way, it's impossible to be all altruistic. <laughs> Because you can only do things that don't benefit you. <laughs> Which means that you die shortly. <laughs> so one, one thing that I noticed in this that, you know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't curse my the listeners with this, but every scene... <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. I just want to prolong the anticipation <laughs> for the listeners of what you're about to say. All right. He's about to curse you with this. Well, it's sort of like the FedEx arrow. Right? Like, once you see it, uh. you can't unsee it, right? And the fact is, in every scene with Maurice, Belle's face looks weird. Like, I don't, I wonder, I don't know if it's that, like, they had the guy who's doing Maurice. They're just like, hey, just go ahead and knock out <laughs> Belle while you're at it, man. Like, they're in the same scene. Like, you do the whole thing. And he just can't get it. <laughs> like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't know, understand how her face is supposed to be shaped or looks. Like, her eyes are too big and too low and too wide. Like, her face looks weird in every scene with Maurice. And, I like, ever since I've noticed it, yeah, it's like a train wreck. I just can't look away. <laughs> I mean, like, I can't even watch Maurice talk during the scene. He's like, Belle, your face is so weird right now. It's very, sounds very much how I felt in Sleeping Beauty when, like, Aurora would be the wrong color. Like, I can't, <laughs> like, I don't know what else is going on, but her legs are purple. And I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely, um definitely something weird and it comes up it happens again later you know like when you fast forward to the mm-hmm. scenes where he's like sick in bed like the mm-hmm. same thing takes over and i i wonder if it you know is something about like you know who whoever's animating maurice like they just decided to let him do bell i don't know it's interesting you know as i was researching uh you know each character has a supervising animator mm-hmm. uh assigned to them but yeah, I don't know how they break up the, you know, right. the, the different scenes. Maybe the, the mm-hmm. maybe the the animator who owned Bell was too trusting of the animator who owned Maurice. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, no, you're fine, you're good, Jim. I, go for you're it. You're gonna be great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got a tea time here, and like, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. Why don't you just knock that out for me? I, you're amazing. <laughs> I bet it's exactly like that. Yep. So Maurice hops on Philippe. I mean, there's like, oh, it's like, man, Philippe, our horse with personality is back, man. Yes, right. Seems to me like the name Philippe seems clearly to point back to Sleeping Beauty and Philip, which mm. Magnus, or Samson. Samson. Ma- Not Magnus. That's Ma- Rapunzel. Maximus. Maximus, yeah. yes. <laughs> right, but Samson and uh, Sleeping Beauty, right? I, th- I feel like Philippe has got to be a little bit of a nod oh. to that. Yeah. No, he I mean he's he has personality. He's not as aggressive, he's not as flamboyant as as, right. as the others. He's but a he, farm horse. Yeah. Draft horse. That's right. He's not a charging steed. Then. Yeah, he's not a war horse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he's so, great. So he he's hauling Maurice to the fair. <laughs> and we yeah. should be there by now. Yeah, dude. It's a great um you know, like rock, wrong turn at Albuquerque kind of scene. Where, you know, like, Maurice is... And you can tell, right? Like, if he would just let Philippe lead, yeah. it would all be fine. But he's got... Not that way, this way. Well, it's... Once again, it's the, it's the kooky inventor mm-hmm. trope of, like, totally incapable 
of doing simple, practical things. Where are we? Where have you <laughs> taken us, Philippe? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's that beautiful scene where Philippe is standing at the crossroads, and it's like one way is like dark, gloomy bats. The other way is like happy music, light, and he's like, Oh, we're going to go that way. <laughs> but, but Maurice makes him go the dark way. That's, it's a and, shortcut. <laughs> we'll be there in no time. And then yeah. they're thoroughly lost. And he says, where have you taken us, Philippe? <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. It's a classic. Then, of course, the wolves come. They have this chase scene. They, uh, right, there's a little interaction with the bat tree. Right, you know, yeah. everybody. He, he drops the lantern, and it flares up, and Philippe Dude. runs off. What a cool little detail. I really, I've always really liked that. Like, as a kid, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what happens there. It's mm-hmm. like, why does it, you know, like, you know, the idea... It, it's a nice little detail to have it, like, you know, flare up and burn all the oil. Right. And then... And it spooks the horse. He runs off. Maurice falls right. down. And uh, now he's alone, surrounded by these wolves. Runs to the, the castle gate. He says, yo, help, let me in. <laughs> and then, inexplicably, the gate opens. Right. A little, a little first subtle hint. Right, like he's like, beating on the gate, beating on the gate, and then all of a sudden it just, like, dumps him inside. And... Sh- Crashes shut behind him. I guess he kicks it shut. I think he kicks it shut. Yeah. Regardless. Right. He's now safe from the wolves. Right. Um, so what we're alluding to is we propose that it's the servants of the castle that open the gate and let him in. Mm-hmm. I definitely think so. And then he doesn't stay there in the courtyard. He goes inside. Well, it starts to rain. But something is left behind. His hat. And this is important. Mm-hmm. Remember this, dear listeners. <laughs> it's a key clue. Right. So he goes up, dude, really cool entry scene. You know, it's really the only, it's one of the only times in the movie where they make an effort to establish, like, the grandeur of this castle. You know, tons tons of the movie, like, these these scenes in the castle are rather, like, subtle. But in this one, there's, like, there's just a, a couple, three, five seconds of, like... This establishing shot that's like, whoa, this entryway is enormous. And evidently there's a table sitting right by the door that had, just has a candle <laughs> and a clock. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, maybe it's a French tradition. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like baguettes and red wine. It's, it's exactly like that's right. cheese. Next to every door you have a candle <laughs> and a clock <laughs> on a large empty table. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a really cool little scene where, you know, he's, like, kind of talking. You know, somehow, I can't remember when exactly the rain starts, but it's, like, he's outside, and most of the time it's not raining, but, like, right as he's coming in, there's this rain, and so he's, like, dripping wet, like, wringing out. And he doesn't have his hat, so of course he got wet. Right. Yeah, it's, like, dripping from his cloak, and then we get our introduction to the first, you know. Well, so Cogsworth and Lumiere are kind of talking about him. And he hears it, and he says, is anybody there? And he grabs the, <laughs> the candle, candelabra, yeah. and, uh, and he you know, picks it up, and he's kind of searching around with the light. And then he, he realizes, oh, wait, it's the candlestick that's talking to me. <laughs> Over here. <Yeah>. Hello. <laughs> but I love Maurice's response to the enchanted objects. <laughs> it's completely within his character as the kooky inventor. He's like, yeah. oh, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's perfect. Dude, and that interaction with Cogsworth is magnificent. It, it, <laughs> right. It just does such a great job of, like, 
Making Maurice do what Maurice does and establishing straight from the get-go who you're dealing with when you're dealing with Cogsworth. Mm -hmm. Like this stodgy, chubby, overly formal, you know, like, if you please, you know, and slam. <laughs> right. And then when when Maurice sneezes on his, uh, on his face. <laughs> the windshield wipers. And, yeah, and, the, and he uses the, the clock hands to, to, as windshield wipers. It's just great. Yeah, it's a classic cartoon. Yeah, '90s cartoons, man. Like these, these are the things. Mm-hmm. Again, like this is more enjoyable as nostalgia than I enjoyed mm-hmm. at the time because again, it, they were just kind of like overdone tropes. Yeah, right. It's like this. Yeah. This is. It's what I expect to see. So predictable, yeah. yeah that it just like yeah it has no impact at all. Yeah, yeah. So so then they they go and they sit down at the um, uh, by the fire, right? They say, "Come sit in the fire." And right. Cogsworth says, "Not in the master's chair." <laughs> but we're introduced right. to so many of the uh, of the enchanted household items, right? There's the coat rack that gives them the cloak. Um, there's the the dog footstool. Dog footstool. Who obviously Lumiere and Cogsworth, right? Mrs. Pot comes in with uh, with the, the cup of tea, and we meet Chip. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is like the dog footstool. You'd think would be a like a more prevalent character, but he's really only in like one other scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. In There's... fact, like, I don't even think he ever interacts with Belle. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it, seem, it seems like it's a good opportunity that they mm-hmm. just, you know, would, for whatever reason, chose not right. to really... Like, that's a very approachable character. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody, everybody kind of likes a dog. Right. Certainly on TV, right? Right. Well, and I mean, like, <clears throat> he counterpart to Eric in Little Mermaid, right? right. Like, this dog character is like, boom, this is it. It's one of the best ways to know that Eric is a good dude. He has a great relationship with a dog. Yeah, but you're right. They they just don't leverage it at all. You know, a little bit of goofiness in the in the battle scene at the end is about it. Right. All. I think he gets chased into the kitchen. Right. Yeah. It or sets us it, up for the yeah. knife and fire scene. Yeah. Great scene. Yeah. <laughs> right. So and then this is all building into an introduction to the beast, which you get some little foreshadowing leading right. into this, right? So, I don't. So again. Not again. I've not said this yet. <laughs> but so the the beast sees Cogs or sees Lumiere lead Maurice into uh, the drawing room, and he and he sees Cogsworth try to stop him, yet he's still mad at Cogsworth. <laughs> it's like, right. He he knows the truth. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't care. Right. He's a beast, dude. And like, what what a cool opening shot. The profile, like the shadowy profile shot with just his eye in it. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> so yeah, as he comes in and he confronts Maurice and he confronts the servants, what what I love in this scene is every time he roars, thunder crashes, right? Like, <laughs> like you you just feel his power, you feel his anger, you feel his bestiality. Yeah, right? we'll do. And I mean, like the first <clears throat> shot where you see him. Where he's like coming in and he's on all fours and he's got his hackles up mm-hmm. and there's like the stroke of lightning behind him, dude. I mean, the beast is just way too cool for school. So, the, the way they designed him, right? He's got the the head and horns of an American buffalo. He's got the arms and body of a bear, the teeth and mane of a lion, the tusks of a wild boar, and the lower body of a wolf. Like, name a beast that is not part of him. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Yeah, dude, the horns. Yeah, horns. Yeah. Just amazing. Um, so, of course, 
he he captures Maurice, throws him in the the prison tower. So you've come to stare at the beast, have you? Right. Yeah, he says, what are you looking at? He's like, nothing. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like... This you, is, you're right here in my <laughs> face, man. <laughs> this is really weird. <laughs> I'm kind of looking at this. <laughs> so you've come to stare at the beast, have you? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, I just wanted a place to stay overnight. And, right, great way to establish, like, what's going on in the beast's head where, like... He's he's not even interested in actually hearing what Maurice says, right? Like, he is totally presumptive about what's going on. He's so self-involved with his own, like, disgust at his appearance that he can't, like, he can't imagine any other possibility except that, you know, like, somebody's here to, you know, like, make fun of him because yeah. that's he, the only thing he could think of to do to himself. Came to see the sideshow. Yeah. Which, you know... Nobody even knows this place is here, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so he throws him in the, the prison tower, which I find interesting. Prison tower, not a dungeon. You but. know, I could talk for a while about, you know, I mean, that's kind of one of the two places, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. there's prison towers and there's prison basements, right? Mm-hmm. And I... Well, they're both hard to escape from, right? Definitely, right. But in totally different ways, you know? Well, different but the same. You have to use the stairs. Unless you're going to scale the outside of the tower. Right. Which Finn could do. Finn, yeah. Or Royce. Or Royce. <laughs> no, yeah, I, mean, I mean, Royce could drag Hadrian behind him and do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, of course, Andre the Giant could clearly do it, too. That's true. With three people on him. Hmm. Ah, anywho, so many possibilities. <laughs> so, so we know that the dungeons are yeah, way better because you're surrounded by dirt, and digging is just miserable. <laughs> it's true, but I mean, nobody likes digging. Man, yeah, and it just takes forever. You know, even if you have a tractor. Even if you have a tractor, it's true. Yeah, so he takes him to the tower, um, and then we go back sh- to the to town. That's right. That's right. Now we swap to the scene <laughs> of Gaston. He's got his whole wedding laid out in the field. And he's like, <laughs> he says, I guess I, guess I better go ask the girl who marries the girl. <laughs> you know, like all these. Everybody assumes it's a done deal. Dopey townspeople. Right. I mean, yeah, the bimbets are just, you whoa, know. Whoa, whoa. Let, let's, let's, you want to try some wine? Yes. I mean, wine is a perfect thing to mix with a wedding. Of course. I mean, the only thing better would be. Champagne. True. Which, I had a bubbly, but I didn't bring it because it's not French, it's Italian. So, what we've got here is a Sauvignon Blanc. Which is French for white. <laughs> well, the Sauvignon, I think, is a, uh, it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. So, it's a type of grape. And then, rather than, you know, the red version, which they call Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, because you make white wine out of the same grape. So is it a red grape or a white grape? It's a red grape. How do they make white wine out of red grapes? So the color comes from when you let it rest on top of the uh, skins. Interesting. Color comes out of the skins, right. I never knew that. The juice itself is red. I thought it was different types of grapes. I think that that's true. There are definitely white grapes. Who knows? Maybe I'm talking out of my other end. (laughs) But... (laughs) That was close. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's interesting about French wines is that they're very focused on what they call the terroir. So, ter- terroir, terroir, terroir. <laughs> um, 
So the place that it, that the grapes are grown in France, like there are these particular regions. You know, this is from the Valley of Loire, L-O-I-R-E, and so um, they control access to these vineyards very carefully, and they're notoriously have very distinctive flavors. Scumps. Scumps. The proper scumps with wine, although it's not bubbly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's, good. It's a bit sour. It's a little sour. Mm-hmm. It's very mild. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a definitely a mild sour. You know, the Sauvignon Blanc. I was expecting something a little sweeter. It's, yeah, I was definitely expecting sweeter. It smells sweeter. Mm-hmm. While you were describing it, I, I was. I was doing the, the swirl and sniff, you know, as proper wine tasting. <laughs> Evaluating the nose. <laughs> and it, it definitely has a, a sweet smell, but a, a bit of a sour taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a touch of sour and really sort of round. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sit on your palate real heavy, though. Mm-mm. No, yeah, it clears off very quickly, which I would say is typical of Sauvignon Blanc, but usually it's got more front end, mm-hmm. in my experience. <laughs> Which is that. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> now, back to the wedding. That's right. So Gaston is, is all duded up and hit. Dude, what a great outfit. Red jacket, white pants. Which is British. Huh. Red I coat, I had never man. thought of that. But, and he doesn't have much of a French accent. But his name is, is de- very French. Yeah. And I mean, you know, does anybody really have a French accent? Uh, Other than Lumiere. But, uh, and yeah. the feather duster. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I've been burned by you before. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so now Gaston gets to walk up and, um, you know, with his big plan to propose to Belle and walk out the front door and marry her right then. What I find interesting is he waits till Maurice is gone. Yeah. That's a that's a real winner right there. <laughs> and man, Bell handles this with such grace. I I certainly would not. He comes just barging through that front door and all the assumptions in the world. And and she says, puts his muddy boots on the book. Again, you know? again, we damaged this book. We didn't even mention he threw it in the mud earlier. That's true. That's true. In the first interaction, he throws the book in the mud, and then he does it a second time. And it's, it really is like, it just captures in an image exactly what's going on here. Like, her interests, he has no interest. He doesn't, right. she, why would she have interests, right? right? What she has interests in are his children, his dogs, his supper, and his feet. Right, like, <laughs> and the kill he just brought home. That's right. So he can mount another trophy on the wall. <clears throat> that's right, and, and you know, as we pointed out, you know, perhaps that's uh, his environment hasn't helped him to overcome mm-hmm. this problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, right. So now, and you're right. She is, although you know, <clears throat> probably I don't know. What do you say? It's prudent of her to be a little bit cautious in this situation. Because she is, she's in a very vulnerable place. She's certainly at the disadvantage, right? He comes in, she's alone, right? Everybody in town is going to be on his side no matter what happens. Right. She knows any accusation against him is going to fall on deaf ears. And so she does. She does. She, she manages it very well. She demonstrates her intelligence. She can operate on her feet and her ability to kind of, you know, like uh, <clears throat> move things in the right direction. Right. And what what I love is is the line 
Gaston says, I'm going to make all your dreams come true. And she retorts with, <laughs> What do you know about my dreams, Gaston? <laughs> which really captures Belle's character, right? She, she wants something else, which she expressed in the opening song. The people in town don't get her, and she has no interest in Gaston. Like, all of it in that one <laughs> sentence. Dude, and, and she she does. She piles on the double meanings in this. Mm-hmm. The other part that I love is at the, at the very end, yes. she says, Gaston, I just don't deserve you, and then dumps him out the door. Right, opens the door, and he falls out into the pig pen <laughs> in the mud. Oh, oh, dude, it's so monumental. It's and amazing. Then, and then LeFou strikes up the man. And he turns around, and the pig is on Gaston's head. And then it How'd it go? <laughs> dude, and, it, and it, this is the first real glimpse of LeFou, like, subtly making fun oh, of yeah. Gaston. He's poking the bear. Yeah. <laughs> he may get beat up on, but, buddy, I mean, he gives as good as he gets in a lot of ways. <sighs> yeah. And the pig keg comes out first. I yeah. mean, like, you know. I don't know. At least in the 90s, being a pig was, like, a synonym for being a chauvinist. So, I mean, like, it's like, mm-hmm. that's dead on. Well, yeah, I think uh, A.C. Slater in uh, Saved by the Bell, right? Mm. Yeah, he, he was kind of the, you know, the the innocent chauvinist, right? You know, like, oh, he just doesn't know any better, and, you know, Jesse's always trying to, to you know, teach him because he would call women chicks and babes and, you know. <laughs> And, you yeah. know, he would he would get called a pig every once in a while. Yeah, right. It's like it's yeah. in the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like that's what pig means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's more of a slur on police officers. Oh, interesting point. Yeah, it has mm-hmm. shifted that way. Now, Bell comes out. That's right? right. We have our second. We we have a reprise right. of Bell's song. That boorish. Oh, I mean, brainless. I, mean, I love this. Uh, I love this because she comes out. She says, "Is he gone?" <laughs> he asked me to marry him. Can you believe it? The wife of that Boris, brainless, brute. <laughs> Madame Gaston, can't can you, you just see it? it? Yeah, dude, it's and it's so Madame yeah. Gaston, his little wife. And she says wife with such derision and disdain. <laughs> like like she, it, it tastes so bad in her mouth. Oh, it's just beautifully done. Yeah. Right. She wants much more than this provincial life. She goes, sits down in the field. Dude, and what and what an iconic scene, right? right. Like, this is part two, right? She's like, I want adventure in a great wide somewhere. And wouldn't it be grand for someone to understand? I want so much more than they've got planned. Dude, and that dandelion with all yeah. the little seeds float. I mean, th- it's just, um, it's beautiful. There's so much art in this one scene. Yeah. Like it, it's visually stunning. The music, the the lyrics, the the character they've developed already. Right, and you watch these little seeds float away on the wind. They're like slipping from her fingers. You know, it's like she can she can see her vision of the future like floating away on the wind. And then here comes Philippe to deliver all of her dreams, <laughs> but she doesn't know that. No. Hey, friends. You all know the drill by now. We talk too much. So stay tuned. Look forward to part two coming up on a podcast station near you.